last week a little bit about the chapters that we're going to look at tonight, which are called the, uh, the really the Sefer HaNechama. Um, there is an opinion that the book of Yirmiyahu, the book of Jeremiah, was was all written by Yirmiyahu Navi, and he also wrote uh, Sefer Malachim, apparently as well, and Megillus Eicha was written by his Talmud Baruch Benaria, but there is, a, there is an approach that says that Sefer Yirmiya is a pastiche of different uh, documents that Yirmiyahu had compiled over his lifetime of different nivuot that came down to him, and, uh, and he put them together. So there is, there is, um, there is backing to say that these chapters that we're going to be looking at, uh, which are called, if you look in, um, if you look in modern day, uh, the Dat Mikra calls it this. Uh, there are uh, the Jerusalem Bible, which is a Catholic Bible, calls it this as well. Uh, that these chapters are seen as distinct from the other chapters in the Sefer, and that chapters 30 to 33 of Sefer Yermia are the prophecies of consolation, the prophecies of Nechama. And that's what we're going to be looking at tonight. And I mentioned last week's year that there is a clear juxtaposition between chapter 3, Perak Gimel, and Sefer Yermia, and Perak Lamed and Lamed Aleph, uh, which go according to the same themes that are discussed first as a warning or first as a call, and thereupon as words of comfort and a prophecy for the future, should the initial call not be heeded. And uh, spoiler alert is that the call of Yirmiyahu that we were talking about last week, that he went directly from Eretz bin Yamin, from Anatot to the north, to issue a proclamation for the reunification of the northern tribes, which were basically an Assyrian backwater at that time, uh, with real, no real affiliation with the southern kingdom, especially after uh, the wars that we had seen in the, in the days of Ahaz, Melech Yehuda, that uh, there was a call from Yermia saying that the plan is, is for the people of the north to come and to reunify with the people of the southern kingdom. That did not happen. And what we'll see is that in lieu of that actually happening in accordance with Yermiyahu's call to them, what we see is the prophecy for the future of when that will eventually happen in the days of either Mashiach or at least by Yashani. Um, whether it's the eschaton or we're talking about the near future, the redemption of Israel is going to be contingent upon all the tribes of Israel coming together and, uh, and managing to reunify themselves after all this time of separation and strife between them. So without any further ado, we're going to jump right into it. And uh, some really, really fascinating stuff to look into tonight. We'll see if we get into, well, I'll, I'll hold my cards a little bit closer to my chest. Um, but I also, uh, I usually say at the beginning of my shiurim, and I neglected to mention it here, is that uh, I thank you all for coming to learn together with me. So let's, uh, let's, let's see what we did. Previously in the book of Jeremiah, we looked at the background to the split between the northern and the southern kingdom, what made it final uh, in the days of Ahaz. And then we took, we took a look at the beginning of Yirmiyahu's prophecy and call to the northern and southern kingdoms. And I think it uh, behooves us to return to that and to see, to see how strongly, how strongly Yirmiyahu worded himself, really shuffling between the northern people who were the direct addressees of his prophecy and the people in the southern kingdom of Malchus base David, uh, who Yirmiyahu has some very, very harsh words for them. 
So Vayomer Hashem Eli B'yemei Yoshiyahu HaMelech. We talked about when this exactly happened last week. Hereisa Sher Asa Meshuvah Yisrael Holchahi Al Kolhar Kavava Tachas Kol Eitz Ra'anan Vatizni Sham. God says, have you seen what the northern kingdom did, the people of the ten tribes in the north, have you seen what they did? They sinned to God with Avodah Zarah at every possible juncture, and they found themselves Vatizni uh, Sham. They're likened to a harlot, to a prostitute, to going and following other, gar- other gods. Va'omer acharei asoses kol elu elaitashuf. And they'd been told time and again to return to Hashem to do tshuva v'lo shava. And they did not. Vateri begod achos Yehuda. Meanwhile, the southern kingdom saw what had happened to them. They saw everything. And they saw that because of the mashuva, from the word shovavim, from the word of rebellion, they saw everything that happened to them and that they were sent, they were dispersed, and that they lost their hold, their grip on the kingdom. God says, and this is very chilling, but God describes as they were given a bill of divorce. They were given separation document to say that they are no longer going to have or enjoy the benefit of the covenant with God and their fate was sealed. Not completely, of course. And Yehuda, the people of the southern kingdom, nevertheless saw everything that happened to them and they didn't, uh, they went ahead and they did the exact same thing. They, they, didn't, they didn't get the message. They didn't get the point. I put over here in the footnote an important point of tochacha, an important point of sharp rebuke that Yirmiyahu has for the Jews of the southern kingdom. From the words of Yirmiyahu, it seems that the sins of Yehuda, the sins of the people in the southern kingdom are worse than the people in the northern kingdom. Yehuda is only called the Bogade. Yehuda is, uh, Yehuda is called, not only, Yehuda is called the Bogade, a traitor. Whereas Meshuvah, the word rebellious and childish and, uh, and, and unruly, is given to the people of Malchut Yisrael. So why is that? So the answer that Rashi says, Vatera begoda achosi Yehuda, koze begoda kashemi Meshuvah Yisrael. Yehuda, the people of Malchus based David, are actually worse than the people of Malchus Yisrael. That there's a difference. And the reason Rashi says is, Shehem Rishonim Lekilkul. The northern kingdom was the first to go, the first to suffer serious consequences for their sins. Vlora Poranos. And they didn't see it happen to anybody else. Lil To learn. You see something happen to somebody else, an example is made out of them. You should, you should learn the proper message. The southern kingdom, Alchus based David, absolutely knew what had happened to the northern kingdom. They saw what had happened, that they were given this bill of divorce, they were given this separation document, that the Brit suffered tremendously because of their sins, and nevertheless, we find that Malchut Yehuda, Malchus based David, did not learn. The people of the southern kingdom didn't learn. V'lchen Kruim Meshuva, that's why they are called rebellious, the northern kingdom, and Yehuda, Shera'u Musar, they're called traitors. That's why in, in, in our general understanding, I think that we, we, we like to read Tanakh and to say, wow, look how terrible the, uh, the northern kingdom was. I mean, they were really godless and they were so, they were so uh, antithetical to anything that has to do with uh, Judaism and their actions and with Avodah Hashem in connection to God. And nevertheless, Yirmiyahu over here in one of his first prophecies 
basically is outlining that Malchut Yehuda, the southern kingdom, is worse because they should have learned and yet they still continue in their ways. Vaya mikol zinusa from the lightness, right? From the word kalut rosh. From the lightness uh, of how they took it, of their rebellion and their, and their going astray. And it's likened to sexual immorality, to sexual desires. They followed their desires and they completely defiled the land. The sister of the northern kingdom, Yehuda, did not, did not, uh, did not relent in their traitorous ways. Yehuda b'cholibah, and they didn't do any tshuva, lo shave lai begoda achosa Yehuda b'cholibah, ki im b'sheker ne'um Hashem. Their return, their tshuva, the tshuva of the southern kingdom, of Malchus based David, of Yehuda, we'll just call it Yehuda from now on. So their tshuva was not sincere. Their tshuva was fake. It was b'sheker, God says. Now what was the sheker? What was the lie of the, of the Jews of Yehuda in that they didn't do tshuva? So we know that Yoshiao HaMelech, the king was described as returning to Hashem with all of his heart and all of his soul. So what happened to the people? So we have a very chilling Rashi that tells us what happened. Radak tells us, This is referring to after the Tshuva movement for the southern kingdom of all the Deuteronomistic reforms that Yoshiao HaMelech had instituted after all of that we see that this tshuva movement, the vaunted reforms of Yoshio are in full swing and yet God calls it a sheker, calls it a big lie. What's the lie? Yoshio returned to God fully, with all of his heart, with all of his soul, totally sincerely. However, Yoshio hu sheshav, says the Radak. It was only Yoshio that was doing true tshuva. Aval anshe doro, but the people of his generation they only made as if they were repenting, as if they were doing tshuva out of fear of the king. And that's what Yirmiyahu is telling them. He says, look at yourselves. You could pat yourselves on the back that perhaps you're participating in the reforms of Yoshiao HaMelech, but you're not. You're following in the same ways as your brethren in the north who were only rebellious. You are traitorous. You guys knew what was wrong, you knew what you should have done, and you didn't listen. And this is what Rashi says. Rashi gives a little bit of color to it, and uh, we'll say the Rashi outside, but Rashi describes to us that what would happen was is that the guards uh, or the emissaries of Yoshio HaMelech would go to the different houses to search out for the idols, for the gechkas that they would hide in their houses. And Rashi says what the people would do is ingenious they would have their idols in the backs of the door. They would split the idols in half. When the king's emissaries would come to scour the house for any contraband idols, so of course the door would be open and the tsura of the idol would be broken. And when they left and closed the doors behind them, so then the idol would be repaired and they would bow down to that. So that was the sheker, that was the falsehood, that was the lie of this reform of the people during, during this time. It was ki im It was a total falsehood. Their tshuva was incomplete. And Yirmiyahu is excoriating for them for that. And he's telling them, you had the chance and look what you've done with it. It is all lies. Now it's time to try as much as possible to return to Hashem in truth. So, continue with the psukh. And just to spell out exactly what I'm telling you, that it's not just Rashi saying this. Vayomer Hashem elai 
Sidka nafsha mishuva Yisrael mi bogeda Yehuda. So there you have it. Sidka nafsha, the intent, the desires, the inner workings of Yisrael, of mashuva Yisrael, of the shovavim, of the north, of the rebellious northern kingdom, is worse, or they're more righteous than the treachery of Yehuda. Very, imagine the prophet at the very beginning of his, of his mission, that these are the words for his people. This is what they're supposed to hear from him. God says to Yirmiyahu, go, haloch v'karates advarim ha Go and tell these things to the north. Invite the northern kingdoms to come down. Again, we are still in the very beginning of Sefer Yirmiya, Paragimel. Hashem says, go tzafona, go north. V'amar tshuva mashuva Yisrael nu Hashem lu apil panai bachem. God says, I, I have not given up hope on you. Ki I am filled with righteousness, God says. Lo ator lo olam, I will not be angry forever. No matter how deeply the bond, no matter how deeply the covenant has been broken, I'm still giving you a chance to return. Listen to the words of Yirmiyahu. Return, you have a chance to do so. And here we have beautiful language. Shuvu banim shovavim neum Hashem. Return away were children. This is the word of God. Now, Shuvubanim Shovavim is quite famous, at least in Talmudic parlance, because we know that the Rebbe of Reb Meir, the famous Selisha ben Uvuya, or Acher, as he's called, the other one. So one, there's all kinds of, not origin stories, well, there's all kinds of origin stories as to what caused Acher to be in the language of the Gemara in Chagiga Kotzeitz Benetios, to cut off his plantings, to be kofer, to reject uh, God's, at least God's, there's different interpretations of what exactly his heresy was. Uh, one interpretation I like is that Acher didn't stop believing in God. Acher just stopped believing that God has any interaction with the affairs of man, that there's uh, nihilism almost, that uh, God is not interested, Khalila, that, uh, that there is no good or bad. Uh, and, and one of the stories that Acher, uh, that that we tell about Acher is that Acher, that Rabbi Meir used to try and cajole his Rebbe to do tshuva. Um, for example, there's a story of Acher and Rabbi Meir that Acher is riding on a horse on Shabbos and Rabbi Meir is learning from him. And Acher says to Rabbi Meir, he says, Ad kan tchum Shabbos. You know, Rabbi Meir, you have to turn back where we've reached the boundary of Shabbos that you're not allowed to go beyond. And Acher, Acher turns to him and says, you know, why don't you return? And he says, I've far shamatim apargod. I already heard behind the heavenly curtain, Shuvu Banim Shovavim Chutz Me'acher. So he quotes this Pasuk, he quotes this verse that Yirmiyahu is directing towards the northern kingdom, telling them, wayward children, rebellious children, backsliding children, come and do tshuva. Acher said that he heard this very call with the appended words, Chutz Me'acher, except from Acher. Maybe in another series of Shirim, we could dive far, far deeper into this. Uh, I'm not going to go down that road right now, at least, but uh, why Acher was wrong for his conclusion. But this was the Pasuk, this was the verse that he heard. Shuvu banim shovavim, this call to those who are really beyond, uh, who seem to be beyond all hope, who seem to be beyond any reconciliation, who seem to be beyond the possibility of tshuva of repentance. And Acher hears that as rejecting him. Similarly, the people of the northern kingdom did not hark to these words either. God says, I'm still your master. I will take one from a city or even two from a family. 
and I'll bring you to Zion. Now, this verse is a very important verse uh, for a number of reasons. We'll take a look at the Mephorshim in a second. In my Sabah Zechron biography, uh, when he talks about the period of time after the Holocaust, so he starts the chapter with this verse, taking one from a city, two from a family. And my Sabah describes understanding the interpretation of this Pasuk on his own. He says that, that the survivors were basically, especially the younger survivors, were essentially wandering uh, around Europe, uh, the shattered Europe, filled with the blood of Jewish people. And, uh, and, and he says, you know, you would find one person from a city, you would maybe connect with a family member, the entire cities were decimated, and, and these people were the ones who were redeemed and brought to Zion. Now, it's an interesting because you might expect it to be the opposite. Two from a city, one from a family, but the idea over here is uh, more of a, more of a uh, poetic idea. And I want to show you what I mean by the poetic uh, idea over here. So the Malbim says that this is because, why would, why would God say, because of one person from a city, I'll bring you back? Or because of two people, one person from a city or two from a family, I will bring all these people back in tshuva? The, the Malbim says that the reason that they deserve to be brought back, even if there's not one person from a city, just a tiny saving remnant, I will return you in the future and I'll bring you to Zion. The reason that the people have this possibility of returning, one from a city, two from a family, that will bring all the others together with them, according to the Radak and Shadal, that it's not just them, but these, these people, the ones who hold on strong to faith, the ones who kept the faith, the ones who heard the call to return, they will bring back the others. So the reason is, is because we understand that the reason for their sin cannot be solely placed upon them. It has to be placed also, it can't place it squarely on the shoulders of the people because they were led astray by wicked kings as well, by harsh and difficult decrees that prevented them from doing tshuva. We talked about the stopping up and the roadblocks on the way from the northern kingdom to the southern kingdom to go to the Beis Hamikdash. So that's the reason that they are going to be able to be returned, that, they're going to, that they have the opportunity that even one person, and, and we see this, you know, we see this with modern tshuva as well, you know, the Balchuva movement as it is. We see that sometimes all it takes really, even for the people who are most distant, um, especially during the, the, the heydays of the Balchuva movement, uh, especially after the, uh, six, after the Six Day War and, uh, and, and during the last 20, 30 years or so, we find that sometimes all it takes is one person from a family. Uh, that, uh, that comes back and has seen the light and all of a sudden, uh, sometimes this, I won't lie, sometimes this leads to very negative consequences, of course, but, but all it takes sometimes is just one person to turn the tides, to shift a community, to shift a family, and to, and to bring them all back in tshuva. And that's the idea that's being referred to over here. One from a city, two from a family, and I'll bring you back to Zion. Both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, Yisrael and Yehuda, will call Yerushalayim the seat of God, the place of Hashem's indwelling and presence in this world. And this is a signal of reunification of both the kingdoms surrounding Yerushalayim, which was the flashpoint, which was the place where they split, and that the northern kingdom, Yisrael, set up their own Yerushalayim in the Shomron. V'nikavu elea kol and all of the nations will gather there 
L'shem Hashem liRushalayim v'lo yechu od achrei shrirus libamara. People will not follow their baser instincts. People will not only go after their desires of their hearts to sin, but they will all return to Shalim. Goyim over here is strictly referring to our nation, to the people of the north who are within, uh, now mixed into other nations. But we do have other psukim, very beautiful psukim, that give it a more universal tone as well. We have a pasuk in Yishayahu that is one of my favorite pasuks. It says, It will be in the end of days. The Mount of God, Yerushalayim, will be upstanding above all other mountains. People will stream from the hills. And they will come, all of the nations. And this is indeed, I think, in a more universalistic tone. But this is the same prophecy that is being uttered again by Yermiao over here. So the Jews scattered amongst the nations from the ten northern tribes and from, and from Malchut uh, Yehuda, they were all gathered in Yerushalayim. In those days, Judah and Israel will come together and they'll come together from the north so there's a lot to digest over here, but let's, let's be clear what Yirmiyahu is saying. In this third chapter, this is not so much a prophecy, but an exhortation, an urging, a, a desire that is being expressed prophetically by Yirmiyahu that the only way that we're going to have, uh, that we're going to stave off destruction is through reconciliation, is through bringing the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, Yehuda and Yisrael, by bringing them together. How does that manifest? It manifests from all the people who have been mixed in into all the other nations, scattered about, sent to the four corners of the earth, coming together and surrounding themselves again with one of the goals of Yoshia Wamelech's reforms of returning to Yerushalayim and centralizing worship there. Furthermore, uh, I have a little ha'ara over here, is that the return is described as coming from the north. Now, if you'll recall, in Yirmiyahu's very first vision, we said that mitzafon tipatach hara'ah. And we find this constant bracketing, this constant, um, this constant recall of Yirmiyahu's prophecies of doom and his prophecies of salvation. Yirmiyahu opens with the prophecy of doom, mitzafon tipatach hara'ah, from the north, the destruction and the doom will come. And now it's being described over here that the redemption will come from the north that the tribes will return from the northern kingdoms where they're now scattered about. Remember, Ashur is to the north of Eretz Yisrael. They will return from their scattered places back to Yisrael from the Tzafon. So from there comes the doom, but from there also comes the rebuilding and the tikkun as well. And I think that that's deliberate for us to show this juxtaposition of the evil coming from the north and the redemption coming from the north as well. Continuing along. So... Yirmiyahu reflects and mirrors if what we saw in Paragimel is an actual call to the northern kingdom, to the people that are still there in this, what is now, again, an Assyrian backwater. If that's the call of Yirmiyahu, so it was not heeded. So what we find in the chapters in the Prakim of Nechama, what we find in these, in these Prakim is a mirroring of these words and now a hope for the future that at some point in history either at the end of days or beforehand by the building of Bayashani, that these words will be heeded. And the opening 
of this Sefer Nechama. I put over here uh, in the Dat Mikra Tanakh. Chapters 30 to 33 are called the Book of Comforting Prophecies, according to the content of the prophecies within them. This parallels non-Jewish Bible scholarship as well. The Catholic Jerusalem Bible calls it the Book of Consolation. And other theologians have described it as the triumphal hymn of Israel's salvation. Indeed, the psukim that we're going to be seeing now this week and Amir Tzashem next week are some of the most beautiful and gorgeous visions of uh, emotional visions of redemption that are contained in the entire Tanakh. That Mikra points out that the opening verses over here say the word of Hashem that came to Yermia, signaling a change of theme and one of the 12 places in the book of Yermia that have this sort of preamble. On the 929 Tanakh study curriculum, the headline for these chapters following suit is the prophecies of consolation. And again, they are mirroring this unanswered call by Yermiyahu that we saw in Perikimel. So, Yermiyahu Perek Lamed. Hadavar Asher Haya El Yermiyahu Me'es Hashem Leimor. So, this indicates to us that we have kind of a, an opening for a new prophecy, a new word of Yermiyahu, a new message coming out here, a change in pace. Ko Amar Hashem Leimor. This is what Hashem said. Kisav is Kol Hadvarim Asher Divarti Elecha LaSefer. Write all these things down in the book. Like we talked before, Sefer Yermia is a combination of these different documents and scrolls that Yermia wrote throughout his life as he received these prophecies. Behold, days are coming. I will return the captivity of my people Yisrael and Yehuda. And that's where Yirmiyahu Perak Lamed Aleph checks in. I would say that some of the most powerful verses in religious Zionism come from this chapter, and you'll see what I mean in a moment. And really for any vision, any prophecy, or any uh, yearning that we have for a future redemption. Ko'amar Hashem. Matzachin bamidbar amsiri dechereb haloch lahargio Yisrael. God spoke. And I'm going to move a little bit slowly here now because these verses are so rich and they're so filled with interpretation and understanding uh, that really resonates deep within the Jewish soul. God says, In the desert, the Siri Dechereb. Now this could be interpreted as those who had survived the sword. And there's some who say that this is talking about a general term for the Jewish people as having survived the travails of Paro in our formative years when we were being started as a nation. And God says, now is the time, lehargio, to, uh, in, in modern Hebrew, right, if you start to like get really upset, somebody will say to you, tiraga, tiraga, relax, relax. Lehargio over here, uh, the way that I want, that I want to translate it comes from Rabbeinu Gershom, perusha sheyehelehem menucha migalutan, the harga'a, the calming down. You could say to all Jews, really, calm down. <laughs> yeah, like, why are we so stressed and anxious and uh, nervous, right? It's, look at us. Look at what we've suffered. There will be a final uh, comfort. There will be a final calming down. And that calming down is menucha migalutan, rest from all of our peregrinations and all of our trials and travails throughout our history and all of the travels that we've gone throughout the diaspora from one place to another, us here in America are just yet another stop along that great historical way. And we do what we do in these countries and we hopefully enhance the world by our presence throughout. And Lahargia Yisrael, 
that's the place that we will relax, finally be able to unshoulder the great burden of Jewish history and to put our, to put our things down and say, you know, ishtachas givno ishtachas gafno ishtachas te'eno, that we'll be able to sit down and rest all of us underneath our trees, vagar zevin keves, in the words of Isaiah, that there will be a hargal, be a relaxing for not just us, but all creation. We find a little bit more over here that the Gemara Makos tells us, Amar of Yosi bar Hanina, there were four decrees that Moses decreed on the Jewish people. Four prophets came and issued the antidote or spoke about the counteraction to Moshe Rabbeinu's Gezerus. Moshe Amar, and this uh, should be familiar to us from this past week's parsha. Moshe tells the Jewish people during the curses, he says that they will never find relaxation. They will never find a true, and this is, this is maybe, you know, this sense of Jewish history of always having your bags packed, of always knowing, you know, a Jew knows where their passports are, that a Jew knows that, uh, that we're not quite settled, and that every time that we say that we're settled in a place, well, history has a way of showing us, unfortunately, that we are not, that the matzav, I think that the desired, at least from the prophetic standpoint, the desired matzav, the desired state of mind, the intended state of mind for us in Galos is one of discomfort, is one of being slightly ill at ease, no matter how good. And certainly in, in this particular Galos uh, that we find ourselves in America, one of the most prosperous and comfortable and safe exiles, not without problems, of course, of history, but there is no manoach, there is no true rest. Moshe said, and that was Moshe Rabbeinu's prophecy, Uva goyim ha-heim. In those nations that we will be cast out into, lo targia, we will not have this feeling of ragua, of being calm. Yirmiyahu says to that, Haloch lahargio Yisrael. I am coming to calm down, to tell the Jewish people that there will be a resting place, that there is a place that we indeed do feel at ease, that we indeed are allowed to unshoulder the burdens of Jewish history. That is, that is, if there's ever a vision of salvation, I think that is really it in a nutshell. The sense that things are in the right place, that we are in our right place. And this is, I know, a harshly anti-diasporic notion. And there might be many who say that the diaspora too should be a place where Jews find Manoach. Although, uh, although I, I think the Jewish history begs to differ. Merachok Hashem Nirali. Yirmiyahu says... From So this is the stated purpose, that I'm coming to tell you that there will be this relaxation. There will be this time to lie down and to relax after, at the end of Jewish history. So from afar, we'll translate it here with the JPS translation, then we'll dive into it. From afar, God appeared to me. It's because why, are, why after all of this, why after being exiled, why after destruction, why after all of these terrible things occurring, should we find this relaxation? So Yirmiyahu says that there is an eternal love that God has for the Jewish people. And that eternal love, despite what we may do, God causes us to be drawn back with his chesed, with his loving kindness to reforge that bond, to always have a, sec, a, sep, a second chance. Now I want to say a few words about this verse, and we're going to move a little bit more slowly over here. May Rachok Hashem Nirali from a distance, right? Uh, like the Bette Midler song, from a distance. So from a distance, God appeared to me. Now the very first thing that jumped out to me when I thought of this 
is that Vayar et hamakom mirachok. Let me show you where that pasuk is. Vayar et Vayar et hamakom mirachok. That during the akeda, so Vayhi bayom ashlishi v'yisa Avram is bayom ashlishi. Vayisa Avram is ena Vayar es hamakom mirachok. This is the first time that it appears in the Torah. And over here, there's such beautiful interpretations. The Hasidic interpretations that I've seen, the Me'ashi Loach and other Hasidic interpreters say that Avraham, who we don't see explicitly bucking against this terrible uh, command by God to sacrifice Bincha, Yechidcha, Shahavta, that we have clues or subtle hints in the text that tell us what's going on in Avraham's mind. That Meirachok over here with Avra means that God appeared to him from afar. That God was distant. That we find God as being that, that there was an inscrutability at this point. That Avram wasn't able to understand exactly what, what he was being asked to do. And he was dutifully following along in the word, in the, to the word of God because he's Avram Avinu. Because he's our patriarch and he instills us with the Amuna that lasts to this very day. But the Rachok over here indicates distance from God. Now, indeed, when we're talking about, um, by the way, uh, all those Hasidic perushim, they also point out Vaigash, Vaigash Moshe El Ha'arafel. See, I don't even need to be a Talmud Chacham. I could just put in the snippets of the Psukim, Asher Sham Ha'elokim. Right. So, in Shmos, that when Moshe goes Vayamod Ha'am Meirachok. Right. Here's another instance that the nation stood far away. Moshe goes into the thick darkness that over here, the nation isn't just standing away from the mountain, but they're indeed slightly distant from the revelation that Moshe is going to receive, that God is inscrutable to a certain extent. And Moshe himself, the Arafel, God is indeed to be found in the messiness, in the, sub, in the subtleties of, uh, and complexities of, of human existence. It's never quite black and white what our relationship with God is, that it is one that is sometimes an arafel, it is sometimes in a cloudy mist, or we're like the nation, so that is two other instances of meirachok, which could lead us to say that if Yirmiyahu is speaking for himself right now, meirachok Hashem nearly, he's talking about terrible times that have happened or are going to happen that necessitate these prophecies of Nechama, and there is indeed an inscrutability, a distance that is engendered by that. However, there's a bit of a machloket in the commentaries as to who exactly is speaking here. It seems to be that according to the, according to Targum Yerushalmi or Suda Jonathan, or according to the Radak and according to the Barbanel, so these are the words of the nation. The nation is saying God appears to us from the distant, from the distant past, not physical distance, from the distant past, rather than the a spiritual distance that we used as our first interpretation. The Radak says over here, The Jewish people say, God has appeared to us. We have a long history with God. But God has hidden himself from us. God has obscured his countenance from us during our exile. And God answers them, while it may seem indeed that I've indeed hidden my face from you and all these terrible things have happened to you in the exile, nevertheless, my love for you extends throughout the generations and transcends even your temporary sins and rebellion against me. 
Lo haisa ahavasi elecha lefi sha'a. My love for you, God says, was not just at one time in history. This love was everlasting. I will give you my loving kindness. So God is telling us that even though it seems that his love from us is distant now, that we are estranged from one another, Nevertheless, there will be a reconciliation. God's love is everlasting. The covenant forged at Sinai cannot be abrogated. It could be battered. It could be beaten down. It could be suppressed. It could be hidden, but it can never be completely broken. It can never be a full safer crisis. Even the northern kingdom, which was given a bill of divorce, a bill of separation, as we talked about before, they too have the ability to return. They too have the ability to be called from the north, to return from the north, and to reunite in Jerusalem. And that is indeed the eschatological vision. But this is the words of the Jewish people. So Rashi, however, says, and he's quoted by Shadal, Rav Shmuel David Letzato, he says that these are the words of the Navi. This is the words of Yermiyahu HaNavi speaking. And he says that God is indeed distant from me. I see Hashem coming from a distant place. I'm in Eretz Yisrael now. And I know where my brethren from the northern kingdom are spread out throughout all the nations, that they're, that they're dispersed amongst all the lands. Nevertheless, I see Hashem bringing them back from those distant lands to Eretz Yisrael. And, the, and he's describing God bringing them back from the distant, from the far-flung reaches. Dalit Kanfo Sa'aretz, that they've been dispersed to, these seemingly insurmountable distances, Yirmiyahu sees Hashem Meirachok, bringing them back. What a beautiful, beautiful vision. He continues, so we'll just read the Pasuk again with all these interpretations in mind. From a distance God appears to me or to us. Because of my everlasting love, you will eventually feel the full weight of the divine embrace and the loving bonds that will bring you back. You will be rebuilt and you will come back, you will have children, you will reproduce, and you will build your families again. Besulas Yisrael. Take a look over here. Besulas Yisrael, the virgin of Israel, the young maiden, the pure young maiden, is contradistinction to the words of harlotry that are described. Vatizni achota. When we were talking about Yehuda, that uh, this juxtaposition between innocence and sin that's being used over here, which is, of course, deliberate. Od ta'adi tu payich. You again will take out your cymbals and tambourines and you will go out to dance in the circles in the Mesachakim, singing and laughing. Uh, we have, of course, the Malbim points out, he says, It seems to be that whenever we experience a revealed redemption, the initial response is to sing is to sing to God, to play our instruments, to call out in rejoicing and exultation. Ta'adi Tupayich is a direct reference, says the Malbim, to our reaction to the Geul of Mitzrayim. Henga alsi eschem, acharis kereshis. That the final Geula, the final redemption, will be likened to the first redemption all the way down to the instruments that they play during that time of redemption. O ta'adi tu you will uh, gird. Ta'adi means like a, sort of like a jewelry, I guess that they wore their tambourines and their drums. 
they will be adorned with it and they will go out and dance and be with happiness. The Malbim also says that uh, we find this over here, v'chilelu, and maybe we'll end with this, that v'chilelu is that, uh, and we'll touch upon this next week because we haven't even uh, dug deep into this. V'chilelu talks about uh, another topic. It's just uh, Hashem winking at us. Another topic mentioned uh, in this past week's parsha, we talked about Maiser Shani. Maiser Shani was uh, tithe, one-tenth of grain, wine, olive oil that was brought during the second, fourth, and fifth years. And what you would do with it is that you would take it to Yerushalayim and you would eat it there. Showing that even if you were far flung in the agricultural regions, regions of Eretz Yisrael, you'd still bring it back to the Beis HaMikdash, to Yerushalayim, and you would recognize where your bounty comes from. Maiser Shani has a close corollary uh, when it comes to fruits of a tree. The first three years of a tree are called Orla, and you're not allowed to touch them. And in the fourth year, you have something called Kerem or Netaravai. And in the fourth year, after the Orla is finished, so you take the fruit of the fourth year and you bring it to Yerushalayim. If you cannot bring that fruit or wine to Yerushalayim, so you do something called, uh, uh, you are Mechalalit, meaning that you redeem it on produce and then you buy something, a sandwich or a beer, uh, you buy in Yerushalayim and you eat it there. So this is actually a kind of veiled rebuke in the sense that the Shomronim, the people of the north, says the Malbim, did not bring their fruit. They did not bring their kramim, the, 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 the bounty of their vineyards. They did not bring to Yishalayim, of course. They kept it in the north, which was against the Torah. And in the future, they will indeed uh, go ahead and do that again. Um, I'm, going to, I'm going to stop the share right now. So much more to do. 